Master cinematographer Alan Davia has passed away at the age of 77 due to complications from the coronavirus. If you don't know Mr. Davia by name, you certainly know him by his work. Here's just a sampling of his credits. E.T., The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Fearless, Bugsy, Defending Your Life. His images will live as long as there remains a love of the movies. We were honored to speak with Mr. Davia on several occasions for our podcast. In tribute to his memory and the legacy of his stunning work, we're replaying the following conversation with Mr. Davia, where we primarily discussed his collaborations with Steven Spielberg on E.T. and Empire of the Sun. I met Steven in 1967. Hmm. And uh, that was when he was um, searching to do his first... Um, 35 millimeter film. See, he learned something very early on. He was gate crashing Universal, and uh, he would show them some of the films that he had done. And uh, I remember one 16 millimeter film that he did that was really, I thought, terrific. And you know, but he said he would run these 16 millimeter films in on, on the big, you know, one of the screening rooms on the big screen there. And it was very nice, and people say, oh, that's very good, you're very talented, and they sort of pat him on the head and say, someday you're going to be a real director. Well, that didn't go over very well with Stephen, and uh, so it was the kind of thing he said. Suddenly, you know, he realized that if he was going to be taken seriously uh, by these executives, he'd have to fill that screen. So he knew he wanted to shoot in 35 millimeter, and uh, a friend of his named Ralph Burris had inherited some money and agreed to donate it so that Stephen could make uh, a film which was a bicycle racing film called Slipstream. And it was about European-style bike racing. And Stephen, being the thorough person that he is, had gone around and organized a whole group of European-style bicycle racers. And they had agreed to come out and be in the film for nothing. And uh, it was all set up to shoot on weekends. And literally... We would all arrive in the middle of the night and start blocking scenes with the headlights, of course, uh, you know, so where the bicycles were going to be, what was going on, et cetera, et cetera. We set up the cameras. I had to come aboard this film as I, cause I had not worked with 35 millimeter that much, and so I had suggested a French cameraman named Serge Aguirre, who had shot in 35 a lot, as the director of photography, and then I was the B camera operator which was great for me because I got to use 1,000-millimeter um, lenses and kind of wild things like that. Yeah. And um, so what we would do is we would rehearse, get the scene set, and then wait. And as the sun broke over the horizon and uh, started sending beams of light down the highway, roll, and we'd start shooting in the most gorgeous light there is at uh, sunrise. And we would, of course, go all the way through the day and shoot in sunset light. And uh, so we get some very extraordinary footage of, of the racing. And Stephen had uh, a couple of actors. One, Tony Bill, was uh, one of the stars. And uh, uh, a guy named Roger Ernst uh, was also in the picture. And um, we shot all of the, uh, I forget how many weekends. I think we shot three weekends of, of bicycle racing. And he had the the, the most, all of the action of, of the race. And then... The last weekend was going to be at a, a, a little um, intersection in, in Santa Monica that had a very nice small town look to it, and we were going. To, Stephen wanted to shoot the opening 
of the film and the closing of the film and the people, you know, uh, cheering uh, the, the riders on. And this was all to happen on that weekend, and he really went full tilt. We rented a Chapman crane. We had a Mitchell camera. Um, we were uh, set to shoot some very, very exciting stuff. And uh, the only thing, the weather just did not get on his side. It not only rained, it monsooned the whole weekend. It was just a disaster. I mean, you couldn't see across the street in real life, let alone photograph it. And I mean, there is still footage from that day that of, of you know startups of scenes, and there'd be sun, and the scene would just get underway, and then a cloud would come over, and in some cases, rain would start to fall. And it was just a, a complete frustration, and it was the end of his money. He and Ralph were out of money at that point, and quite frankly, the you know the, the picture was not finished. And uh, it was one of those those heartbreaking things. I'll tell you the story uh, later about what happened. But Stephen, of course, you know, do not crush his spirit. He was looking in different other you know other projects and short films. And finally, I remember in '68 he called me up about a short film that he was going to do for a guy named Dennis Hoffman, and it was called Amblin. And it was something that he had spun off the top of his head when he got in to see Dennis. Dennis wanted to produce a film um, as uh, he, he was a part owner of a, a special effects house. And so Dennis wanted to see if he could be a producer. And, of course, what he wanted to do was shoot a film in 16 millimeter and then blow it to 35 because their company had just bought a 16 to 35 blow-up printer. But, of course, Stephen went along with this only so far and then said, no, we've got to shoot it in 35 and then all kinds of things had to be made. We had to promise about how many takes we would shoot, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a, a, you know, a, a concern because of how, how expensive it was going to be. But we proceeded to shoot Amblin ten straight days. And this was in uh, July of 1968. And uh, we had this couple, because the story was it was a little... Uh, how do I want to say it? It was a, it was a, a little romantic film about a, a young couple that meet while they're hitchhiking through the desert, and they have a ro- romance. And when they reach the ocean, etc., he uh, it, it acts like the kid that he is, and the the girl, you know, looking at him, walks off and leaves. And uh, it was just uh, you know a, a lovely picture, and it had elements of a youth for youth audiences. At the same time, it has a very very old fashioned romantic flavor to it, so it would appeal to adults. And we shot that picture, and I remember we would shoot as always uh, sunrise every morning, and then we would shoot all day long, and then we would shoot sunset at night, and then we'd get in the car and drive to Technicolor over near Universal and see dailies from the day before. And then drive back. The poor producer would make everybody go to bed, and then we would get up, proceed to to, uh, to go to sleep, and 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 be up at uh, you know five o'clock in the morning to get the sunrise. Because no matter how good the sunrise we got that you know yesterday morning was, there might be a better one this morning. <laughs> and so it was always uh, you know it was it was going through this incredible routine, and uh, the. Um, the nature of of this uh, this couple hitchhiking and and the 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 romantic story romantic story gave them, gave us a chance to do some very romantic images and it was also you have to remember 1968 and so this was a youth story 
But again, I emphasize that while it was a 1968 youth movie, it was also very much a, tra- a classic traditional film. Right, and, right. And um, that's one of the things that appealed about so, it. So tell me what was apparent about Spielberg's talent even then to you. Well, you, you couldn't miss it. I mean, the, the thing that you know people ask about him, and I said, yes, you, you knew it the minute you met him, the minute he talked. You said, yeah, this is the real thing. This guy has really got it. And, and the way... He not only dealt with the camera and all of the logistics, but the fact that he he communicated so well with actors, and um, he had a good sense, a great sense of casting. And I noticed that that there are a lot of people that would probably be superb filmmakers, but they don't have that that immediate recognition of who is the right person to put in the film. Yeah. And uh, Stephen did, and it was just you you got the idea. You know, his sensibilities were so perfectly suited to doing what he was doing. And uh, on um, on Amblin, we had shot in to begin with on the little the little stage that uh, Dennis Hoffman's company had, and we did the nighttime firelight scenes, etc., on that stage. And then we went out and did everything in the desert, and uh, and also then the ending was the day at the ocean. But um, it was a, a tremendous amount of work, and uh, I, I can only say that uh, what's not in the picture is astounding. In fact, I remember I'd tell Stephen, remember the scene that we did for Amblin, blah, 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 and it was like he would have no memory of it. It was something that hadn't worked for him, and he tossed it out, and that was it. <laughs> right, I might right. find it nostalgic, but he was strictly on to what was going to make that film work as a film. Uh, I'm wondering the conversations between the two of you. Uh, let's let's go ahead and start with ET. Um, when it comes to the the pre-production phase and the planning of it, what what conversations take place? What is that language? What what do you guys need to understand? Well, see, Stephen, of course, what happened with Amblin was that it it got him signed to Universal, and in those days, uh, uh, Universal was wonderful and Stephen was wonderful. They tried to get me signed at Universal, but in those days. If you were not born into the cinematographers' union, you never got into it. Was the the yeah. the, 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 the 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 rule then? And there was you either had a uh, father or a nephew who was a cinematographer, or forget it, you didn't become a cinematographer, and uh, or, or you had some very good contacts in the film business, and uh, so it was the kind of thing that you'd go. And I remember when I was 19 years old, going into the office of the cinematographers' guild and saying, you know, I'd like to get an application to for joining and they sort of sneered at me we don't have any applications I said but you're a labor union you have to have applications for people who want to become members and he goes, we don't need them here <laughs> that kind of thing <laughs> basically it was just get out you know and I remember there was a guy in a baseball cap leaning against the counter that said to me at the time look kid just forget it find something else to do you're never getting in this union we're not going to allow it to happen you know, I don't know his name, but I sure wish I did because he's more responsible for me being a cinematographer than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you have to be told that that's something like that is impossible. So yeah, I had gone yeah. to work in commercials and I was, uh, I was working in, uh, in NABET companies at the time and I was uh, working with different people on lawsuits. We were involved in, I think I was involved in three different lawsuits. And finally, in 1975, a guy named Andy Davis, who's much better known now as a director of uh, films, you know, uh, than than he is as a cinematographer, uh, had found an attorney that was a terrific guy who was nothing to do with Hollywood, who was strictly a labor lawyer, 
And that guy said, no, no, you can't just sue the union. You've got to sue Contract Services Administration as well. You have to sue the producers that are handling the uh, the, the structure of uh, of the uh, roster, uh, or otherwise you aren't are going to get in. And that's that's where the the, the malfeasance is. That's where uh, they are breaking the law. So we filed that suit, and and our attorney warned us it would probably be two to three years before it ever came to trial. But in just a year, we got a call uh, or got letters from the union saying, um, if you can prove that you've worked 30 or more days for one production company, uh, 90 or more days for all the production companies, union or non-union, and it was the first time that had ever happened. They said, bring proof of evidence is on um, on you, and uh, but bring your 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 papers down. And it started a process. It took me two years of getting all of my uh, uh, work records. We went into more dusty warehouses with with unhappy accountants who were helping me find the proof that I had worked all these days in different commercial companies and different things. But nonetheless, after two years, I did finally get into the union. And I did two days for Stephen. He was doing some additional scenes for the, um, the, the, the redo, the new edition of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I did the, I did the scene where they're out in the desert with the airplanes and the dune buggies, etc. And they find the 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 the, uh, the freighter on its side out in the desert. And um, it was one of those things where uh, that was great. It was great to work for Stephen for just doing for just two days. And then he went off uh, to England to, to prep uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And by the time he got back. Uh, it was really wonderful because I had gotten into the union, and I was uh, I had done two TV uh, movies for a friend of ours named Jerry Friedman, and uh, he, it was one of those things where Jerry saw Steven and says, "Hey, you know, you should see what you know Davio's been doing in in these TV movies," and because uh, he had come up with a uh, um, a rewrite of an old horror film screenplay called uh, Nice Guys. And uh, Melissa Matheson, who was Harrison Ford's girlfriend at the time, later his wife, came up with a screenplay for it and said, Stephen, no, it shouldn't be out in the country. It should be in the suburbs. It should be this. It should be the kid and his family, etc." And lo and behold, she had a film called E.T. and Me. And um, he, Stephen had taken the film back to Columbia, where Night Skies had been uh, you know, basically developed, and offered it to Columbia, and Columbia's reply, I've never forgotten, was, well, according to our research department, nobody over the age of 12 will ever go see this movie. <laughs> and, uh, so they passed. And wow. Stephen then took it to Universal, and he took it to Sid Sheinberg, and uh, Universal said, well, wait a minute, what's this going to cost? I mean, you know, Stephen said, $10 million. They said, $10 million? Come on, you've got rocket ships and extraterrestrials, and, you know, come on, not $10 million. He said, $10 million. And he made a deal with them that if he brought it in for $10 million, he would own half the picture. Uh-huh. And um, so that was one of the great, great things. And we came in, and he needed a cameraman who was fast and cheap, and there I was, uh, you know, <laughs> relatively fast and very cheap. And uh, it, it was the kind of thing that when we sat down and started talking about doing the movie, it was like getting together of looking at films again. And what was really great is we, we developed this thing of, of looking at movies that we both admired, but neither of us had had anything to do with and, and talked about things. And, you know, we were looking at, at uh, uh, you know, footage by cameramen we really admired, like uh, Vittorio Storaro and Caleb de Chanel and, and things like this. And Stephen would say, do you think that's a filter or is it smoke or is it both? You know, and so, <laughs> so we were running these movies with the sound turned down. And I remember it, 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 it was 
just utterly fascinating because we developed a, a, a dialogue, you know, right. about talking about images, and uh, it was one of those things that uh, he he was very concerned about E.T. because here he was doing a movie which basically starred a rubber doll, and how right. was it not to be perceived as a rubber doll? And he knew we had to keep it in your E.T. in the dark for a great deal of the beginning of the film. And it was only as we all got to know him that we began to see him more and more. And uh, it, it was the kind of thing of, um, I would go over to Carlo Rambaldi's place, and Carlo was building E.T., and um, you know I, I would borrow a friend's Aeroflex. <laughs> he, he later says, you should buy me a new Aeroflex. <laughs> I would borrow his and, and shoot footage of, of E.T., and it was always in the beginning, no, no matter how low-key I thought it was, he was, no, it's too bright, it's too bright. So we developed a technique of keeping E.T. in the dark. Basically, he was always backlit. He would have a glow in his eye. He would have just the tiniest little bit of bounce light on him, and, and that's the E.T. that you met at the beginning of the film. And it was uh, it was it was quite something. The, the, the way we developed the, the, the look of the picture and if you'll figure out, of course, that the, when you see it, that it's all kids and the mother, and the uh, you, you you don't see any other adults' faces in the film right. all the way through to the end, when you you do get to meet Keys when you see him, but uh, it was a, a a thing of of control of making a special world, a children's world with their own extraterrestrial. And um, it was something that Stephen was extremely concerned about security on the picture because he said, you know, he said, we'll have this thing ready to come out and somebody will hear, little boy's got an extraterrestrial in his closet and they'll have a TV movie out in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a uh, big concern and uh, it, it uh, luckily it never happened. It, I don't think you'd ever find it, this, this to be the same in history again. But in uh, 1981, when we were shooting that, no, nobody asked questions. If it didn't come out in the press release, the, 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 the press at the time was not finding out about it. And uh, so we kept it very secret. I remember we had one preview of the film. Stephen had shown the film as, as he cut it. Uh, Carol Littleton, and, and he would edit it, and they, he would show the film to friends of his and uh, get very, very good response. And I remember we were getting ready to go into the lab with the picture, I think, in April of 82. And uh, we did, and then in May, uh, Stephen decided we'd have one preview with an audience. And it was in Houston, Texas. And uh, we flew to Houston, I remember, with an answer print. I mean, this is Stephen's confidence, man. His, his preview <laughs> print is an answer print, cut negative and all. And uh, we went to uh, this, this uh, a very nice multi-cinema, and the main uh, the main room I think held 800 people, and I had this beautiful new print, and I had I brought CC gel filters so that I could make sure the projector's color was exactly on, and everything. And I remember standing outside watching the people going to the theater because they had no idea what they were going to see. They'd only been told that day that it was a Steven Spielberg film. And I just I looked at that audience going in. I said, you know, these would be the only people that ever see E.T. as a movie, because you know, after it opens, it's going to be an event. And yeah. uh, so it was the kind of thing of, of watching that audience. And, and uh, um, Henry Thomas was he he was uh, you know his family lived in San Antonio, and um, they came over. He and his mom came over and saw the film. Um, 
with the the preview audience, and it was it was just one of those wonderful things where the audience stayed in total silence through the whole beginning of the film and everything, in, in, including the the boys playing Dungeons and Dragons, and then Elliot went down to the the bottom of the driveway and got the pizza, and he hears the noise in the backyard, and he goes into the backyard and he puts the pizza down, and he walks over and he's looking at the garden shed. And he takes a softball that's lying there and throws it into the garden shed. And when the softball flew back out, the roof blew off the theater. It was just... <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's still... It's, I just watched it again last week. It's still such an overwhelming experience. There are just a few films in life that are truly magical, and E.T., and that's that's one of them. It's, sure, yeah, you know, it, it, it's the kind of thing that i got to tell you. When we were making the film, we knew we had something really good. How how big it was going to be, we really didn't have any idea. But when I went into the lab, and uh, Carol and I started timing with our, our uh, with Bob Rearing, our color timer at Technicolor, I would be sitting there, and I remember we were running just just the cut work picture, which was the, there was no soundtrack, and there were two Technicolor vice presidents that that were, were sitting in the theater with us, and I remember we got into the ET drinking the beer scene, and they were laughing so hard, one of them. Stood up, fell over in the aisle, and was roaring with laughter so much. I said, "Oh boy, yep, this thing is going to be a hit, no yeah. question." Oh God! Elliot. What? Elliot. Elliot. I taught him how to talk. Now he can Elliot. talk now. Elliot. Look what he brought Elliot. up here all by himself. Elliot. What's he need this stuff for? Elliot. E.T., can you say that? Can you say E.T.? E.T. 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 Be good. Be good. I taught him that, too. You should give him his dignity. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Phone. Phone? He said phone? He said phone? Can't you understand English? He said Tremendous amount of pressure on you. 
Yeah. Because and plus, this is a film that's all kids. So at 5:30, they come to you and say, "That's it, no more kids, goodbye," and the kids have to go home. So then we're shooting with the mom. We're shooting with ET a lot with ET and and different shots of ET from 5:30 to 7:30. We'd have that time to get the other footage, and um, it was just one of those things that uh, uh, y- the course of your day you have a 12-hour day, but it's it's the the nature of the thing where uh, I would go to the lab every morning at six and see the dailies at, at, at Deluxe. Uh, with Michael Crane, my daily supervisor, and then I would go over and and we'd start at seven um, of of getting uh, in, into the picture, and we would shoot like crazy, you know, as, as fast as we could because it was all with kids and uh, and this creature and ET, and every scene always started with where is ET going to be? Because understand the the ET that you see the majority of the time is a a, a solid statue i mean he has to be planted and incredible numbers of cables have to come out of his body and go through the floor um the the sets were all built on a uh, uh, on an, uh, a rise they were all built on a, on a platform so that there was room underneath to feed the cables wherever we could place our i think it was 11 people were operating et mechanically people to this day say to me well God, you could do it so much better now because you do it cgi and i go let me ask you something. If it was CGI, what would uh, Drew Barrymore have had to look at at age six? Hey, Drew, just look at this spot on the green, the green backing. No, she had a real creature there. All the kids had a real creature to look at and communicate with. And the, these, the, the Carlo and his crew were so dedicated, they would rehearse things just to do to get the kids excited before the take. And uh, I mean, it was uh, it, it was quite a sensational operation. And um, so we would go like crazy. I remember I would show dailies to the crew at noon. We would not let Stephen see dailies at uh, the Color City Studios because the screening room was so bad. And uh, we said, no, 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 <laughs> you wait till you get home. He had a beautiful screening room at his house. Um, and uh, at the time, so at the end of the day shooting, Stephen would always leave Carlo Rambaldi and Carlo's assistants with enough instructions that all the things that ET had to do tomorrow that he couldn't do today and uh so they we as we would leave they'd be standing there dismantling ET and when we'd come in the next morning they'd be just finishing putting him back together oh. they spent many all night sessions oh i bet i bet yeah it was there's, it was quite an effort there's something that obviously uh among his many attributes there's something that always strikes me about Mr. Spielberg's films, and I'm not the only one to say this, obviously, but it's his <clears throat> mastery of framing and the activity within the frame. And I was speaking with um, a biographer of Mr. Spielberg's uh, yesterday, and he said something very interesting. Nick Bride? Uh, yes. Nick Bride? Yeah, oh, yes, he's wonderful, yes. yeah. Uh, he said something interesting that uh, the Spielberg was asked a question of a, of a novice from a novice director, and she asked, how do I decide what my shots will be? And he said, um, when you're watching your actors rehearse, wherever you find yourself standing, whatever position you're drawn to stand in and observe, that's the shot that you take. I thought it was yeah, so simple and so beautiful. We refer to that as the magic spot. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the camera's going to go. And yeah. he will block, usually his master is shot with a wide-angle lens, and he will block the scene with that and 
you then figure out how his coverage is going to play. And it is what is so interesting is that he's not he, he's rather a traditional guy in terms of of the coverage he may use, but the lenses will be different than than the classic coverage would have been. And he will find a way to make each shot speak through unusual lenses and unusual framing. And that's part of the magic. And when you're working with him, you're seeing, you, you, you learn to anticipate what is coming. Because I found when Stephen would start to rehearse, I had to start lighting. Once I established what windows I was going to be able to use to put light through, etc., I would start my light coming in. And I find this is a, is a valuable thing two ways. One, I'm getting a jump on it. Two, actors get to feel where light is. And it helps them block block themselves to each other. And it is often a great advantage as to what the, uh, the you know the, the the placement of the light that, that what you're what you're doing is 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 receiving cooperation from your performers. And uh, but every performer who works for Stephen knows that they're going to be held to very tight standards as to where they're going to be, and when they lean in, how far that's going to be. And for the camera operator, it's extremely valuable to have subtle communication with actors so that that. He can give them real point points of precision as to where they're going to land because it's right. a it's a complex thing for actors. What what strikes me too is, if I'm not mistaken, he, around this time he's relying less and less on storyboards. Well, E.T. was very very straightforward that way. The only things storyboarded in E.T. were the effect shots, and Kathy Kennedy, who was producing her first film, said, "No, we have to have." Uh, storyboards for the effect shots because we have to have uh, the, the, the the bids made by ILM on what the effect shots are going to cost uh, based on some reality. So the effect shots were all storyboarded and the rest, Stephen decided he'd rather not have the storyboard but because he was dealing with kids, he wanted to have the freedom of movement for the actors that not storyboarding gave him. And so that picture was done, was as Stephen said, he winged it. <laughs> And that means he, he had thought about the ways he was doing. He has the most phenomenal method of of uh, you know design, making decisions in the course of blocking a scene that yeah. really make the scene work. <laughs> Tell people that on Empire of the Sun, the giant scene 
and, and uh, the, the parents and the boy escaping from the hotel and trying to work their way out of the city it was all done in three days. And people look at that and they can't believe it, but it was it was Stephen's skill at pre-visualizing as he's going. He had a great first AD. He had an enormous, enormous apparatus there to manage, and yet we moved like lightning. And uh, it was the kind of thing that it was a seventy-three day shoot, wasn't it? Yeah, and that was three days of it. So it's it's the kind of thing that uh, that you 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 have a director. The most important thing I can say is Stephen is a director who is willing to make up his mind. And I can only say to people who have not made films before, believe me, when you land in a situation with a director who will not make up his mind, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, boy, is it valuable. Like like we just mentioned, Empire, uh, I believe you said was shot, the whole thing was shot in 73 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, several continents, I believe. Three continents. Uh, we had to do some shots in San Luis Obispo because I said, this is a picture we have to be able to say, a cast of thousands filmed on three continents. <laughs> right. right. So we shot some in San Luis Obispo, and there was something shot at the, the studio in L.A. But the rest of it was in China, England, and Spain. How daunting is that? Empire is absolutely one of the defining movies for me in my life. Um and I actually wrote you in the email on how how that sequence just moves me so much um, when he first arrives at the camp. Uh, but how challenging was that to shoot those crowds? Did, did they have how did that work? Was it controlled chaos in a way, or no? It, because we had David Tomlin, rest his soul, one of the most marvelous assistant directors ever. David had done all kinds of little films like. Bond films and uh, Stanley, uh, he had not done Stanley Kubrick, but he did uh, uh, David Lean films, and uh, then he did all of the, uh, I think he did all of the the, the, the three um, of the uh, um, uh, Indiana Jones pictures at the time of his life, and uh, he he was used to large scale. And when you see those scenes of the riot, so the people running around, what we call the invasion of the Japanese sequence, when they're leaving the hotel, run across the street to the car, try and move ahead in the car, have to abandon the car, run down the street, the boy gets separated, uh, the parents are, are, you know, lost and he is, you know, uh, isolated and uh, that entire sequence. Um, What David Tomlin did was we had an enormous group of Shanghai film studio people, and a lot of ADs, and uh, they had the extras that were in closest were extras that were professional extras that, that worked at Shanghai Film Studios all the time. But otherwise, there would be thousands of people coming from who knows where, and they'd get haircuts, and they'd be put in these, these strange outfits, and then they would be organized. And the one thing David Tomlin said, everyone on that set has a Mark One. They know exactly where they're supposed to be standing. So when a scene that was being shot, and we would cut after a take, all of them had to go back to Mark 1. They could find it rather quickly. And they knew which direction they were facing, what they were doing, and David had a stepladder. He would climb up on this stepladder, and he had a 9 millimeter automatic with blanks. And that's what he used to cue uh, all of the extras. 
he could get up on that ladder and and basically fire the gun once to start group number one in motion, fire the gun the second time for group number two, etc. And when the 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 main action hit uh, with the the third shot, etc., you could just see the scissors going in to say, "Yep, this is where the shot starts." And what would look like utter chaos and a riot going on was so precisely planned. Because if you had had a riot going on, you would have had people killed all over the place. Yeah. But because the 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 movement that they made and where they were going was so precisely detailed in 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 terms of of how how these these crowds would surge around each other it was fantastic and seeing the dailies that was one of the great privileges by the way we did not have dailies in china uh, we had we would send film out every night but we did not have any dailies filmed back in because we were very concerned that if the chinese looked at the film they would go oh no we shouldn't have let them shoot there uh, Etc. So we the film basically went to London for processing, and it stayed in the editing room there. And so after three weeks of shooting, we had a week of prep, then three weeks of shooting in 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 China. I left on the Saturday, and I think the crew flew back on Sunday. But I got to England a day ahead and started so I could view all of the dailies, and uh, I saw all of the film shot in Shanghai in one day, and uh, you know in 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 one session. And I've got to say. Uh, it was a highly skilled group of film technicians, and we did not have a scratch. We didn't have any dirt. We didn't have anything that that, that jammed up, gummed up. Uh, the, the focus was just, you know, as flawless as you could ask for. It was an extraordinary uh, shoot in 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 China, and uh, so I was very very happy. And I, I after the, the dailies were printed, that's a touch to the warm side for my taste, but it was. Uh, it was wonderful to be able to run everything uh, for, for Stephen and Kathy and Frank and uh, David and the, the, all of the, the, the uh, major people in the film when they came in. And, and the reward was so tremendous to have engaged in an enterprise like that, going to China and seeing and shooting basically. I mean, we had look, Michael Kahn, the editor, and, and Bob Crowdy from Technicolor saw every foot of film, and we would talk to them. Stephen and I would go back to the room at night and uh, and 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 call them, and and you know I would talk to Bob Crowdy, and Stephen would talk to Michael Kahn, and then we'd switch, <laughs> and notes were being taken. That Bob Crowdy would give me my printing light numbers, which for a cinematographer are just essential. I know exactly where my exposure is, and that it's exactly where I want it. And um, so it was uh, it was wonderful. Uh, it was an, an incredible experience. And uh, we then went on to uh, to do uh, three weeks in England, and uh, the, the stuff that was supposed to be the English colony in Shanghai. Those houses were there, but in '68, when they had the Cultural Revolution, they had taken all of the landscape gardeners and fired them, thrown them out in the country to go slave in the rice paddies, and all the landscaping in those houses died. Oh. And I think the Chinese had a Wild hope that Stephen was going to replace all the landscaping for him. <laughs> Sorry, we went back yeah. to to uh, some London suburbs, and that's where all of that footage was shot. And then we went to Spain. I just have a couple of more questions about Empire, and then I'll let you off the hook. You, you've been so nice. Yeah, nice. No um, you talked about referencing films and watching films leading up to the making of ET. 
when you did Empire, was were, were David Lean movies particularly important? Well, see, Stephen, I think I, I'm not telling any secrets here. Stephen, one of the reasons he wanted to do Empire of the Sun was as an homage to David Lean because uh-huh. you know he we worshipped David Lean's films so much. And David Lean had originally going to be the was originally going to be the director of Empire of the Sun. And in fact, David called up Stephen and said, "Listen, I need your assistance because Warner Brothers won't back me in making Empire of the Sun because I think he was 80 at the time. He says they think I'm going to drop dead." <laughs> he says he says the only thing I can do is say that if I die or wind up in the hospital, that you'll take over and finish the picture. And Stephen said, of course I'd do that. And so Stephen did all of the politicking with Warner Brothers, and he called up David Lean a couple of weeks later and said, okay, it's all set. You can direct Empire of the Sun. And David Lean said, oh, Stephen, you know, I think I'd rather do a film like Nostromo. <laughs> he said, you should direct Empire of the Sun. It's children, and you're very good with children. Anyway, so he uh, uh, proceeded to to pass on to another picture, and I later talked to him because he, he still he wanted to do uh, Nostromo in 70 millimeter, in, you know, shoot in 65 mil, and uh, it was uh, considered to be a, a, a great expense, and the new cameras had just come out because Stephen, we shot 65 millimeter tests uh, on Empire of the Sun, and they were gorgeous to see. But the cameras were the old-fashioned cameras. The cameras came in cases that said Ryan's daughter on them, and um, it gives you some idea of how old these cameras were. And I mean, they were rack over. The main SingSound camera was a rack over camera, and you just can't imagine Steven Spielberg doing that picture with a rack over camera and uh, so it was one of those things that uh, that worked so well that uh, we shot those tests and as much as you know my eyes are filling with tears but I say Stephen if we go there with these old 65 millimeter cameras you're going to die you know and he goes oh yeah don't be you're just being a coward I mean Stephen what are you going to do you 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 use the 35 millimeter panoplex to the extent where it's always ready to fall apart he liked to have the lens scraping along the ground he said we'll dig trenches <laughs> no 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 oh, you don't want to do that but uh, anyway luckily I I, I finally convinced him that he should shoot in 35 that we we would later have better 70 millimeter or 65 millimeter cameras and I but I thought oh my god now I'm going to be the rest of my life while here oh we would have shot in 65 but Tommy was a coward and instead what happened was that uh, um, the what, what's the famous uh, uh, Bugs Bunny uh, the the uh, animated film um, about uh, Oh, Los Angeles um, and the streetcars and uh, right, right, right. Bob Zemeckis's picture, and they were oh, shooting Ro- in, Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Roger Rabbit, yes. Yeah. So they were shooting Roger Rabbit in eight perf. They had a, a, a blimped eight perf camera, and Stephen went downtown to watch them shoot on their opening day, and they were having you know the typical startup problems with a new camera, and it was like oh god. But he said, oh thank God we're not shooting in '65. This is a nightmare <laughs> watching them work. You know. <laughs> So I was forgiven going in, thank heavens. But uh, yeah, it was it was really it was really something. And uh, the uh, just going through the whole thing with the movie, coming back knowing that 
Stephen wanted this additional sequence, which as I said we did in San Luis Obispo, which is the sequence where he uh, finds the outpost that's been taken over by the Red Army, and um, you know the, the the Communist Chinese, and it it was you know a wonderful sequence that we got to do, and Stephen wanted to use a very very strong kind of filtration on it. He wanted extreme diffusion because it's the scene that just follows the A-bomb. And uh, I used a, a type of Tiffin filter that was little circles of diffusion on a piece of glass that already had diffusion in the main piece of glass. And if you looked at these filters, it, they were terrifying. But it worked just right, and we wanted to make the print real bright. And uh, I remember Rob Hummel was uh, running Technicolor dailies then, and I said, this is going to be, it'll scare you. And I, I, I shot my grayscale at normal, and then I said, let it go this bright. And I think they, they were terrified looking at that bright. They took it down just about uh, three or four points, and I sort of said, okay, make it five points brighter. You know, and he went, oh, my God, five points brighter. And and all this footage, and, and uh, I got all the footage reprinted five points brighter with this extreme diffusion. And then I, t- I took it to, to show it to Stephen, and, Stephen sat in the security room, and when he came up, he said, "That's it. That's what I wanted." <sighs> yes, I can tell you, you know, because you, you, you sometimes you carry things out, and this was photographed into it, man. This wasn't going away, and so that's the thing about the old-fashioned style things. People today were so used to digital intermediate and all that. So, oh, well, we'll we'll see what it looks like later. Then you made your commitment, and you shot it that way, mm-hmm. and you hoped you'd committed to the right thing. And in this case, we did. What do you have a favorite image or a favorite sequence? Uh, it's it's a very quiet scene. It's after the P fifty one raid, which uh, that'll keep your your nerves uh, <laughs> stirred up. <laughs> and, and you have that that wonderful thing, and the, and the doctor has carried him downstairs, and uh, the whole thing. And it's it's you see you see Jim entering into the British couples. Uh, the, the, their their residence where he had originally stayed before he went to live with Basie and the Americans, and he's got his suitcase and he comes in, and she sees him standing there, and there's not a word spoken, and the sequence is basically she moves his bed and she gives him things like the Life magazine etc. Uh, and and he pastes that up on the wall. And sits down, and he realizes he's moved back in, and it's just that sense of quiet, and and uh, the very soft light, and and the, the the response of the couple to him being there. I just think it's one of the most evocative scenes of everything to do with his missing childhood. Yeah, oh, that movie tears me up. Um, I, I you know I look at your movies, Bugsy, Fearless, obviously Empire, and I. You know, I'm just a kid from Florida, but I I want to let you know that as a movie fan, your work has been a lot to me in my life, and uh, I appreciate it very much. Well, that's why <laughs> that's why we do it. We really appreciate uh, hearing that, and we love to have uh, you know meetings and screenings and discussions with people. It's uh, it, it, it's why films are different today than than when they were entirely in a studio system, and and when. Filmmaking left the studio system uh, in, and became truly independent. Uh, I think there's been a greater communication with film lovers 
than, uh, than there ever was in the past.